in a positive light. And I know that we would all love to see more of that and want to recognize those in the media that do this. So um, this award really, again, covers any medium, um, anything from newspapers to magazines to radio to television. If it's a medium, it's probably covered by this award. And so, again, um, look at the January issue of the Braille Forum for that criteria and how to submit as well. Um, again, all of these submissions go to the marvelous Braille Forum editor, Sharon Lovering, in the ACB National Office. Her email is slovering at acb.org. And um, we welcome your submissions. Uh, the deadline is, is April 1st. And um, one more note before I turn it back to you, Cindy, um, just want to mention that I know I mentioned this in my report the other day, but if you missed it, I um, want to mention here that we are um, looking to standardize the large print guidelines um, for ACB, the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, or CCLVI, approached us in January and said, hey, um, we'd like to maybe look at adopting um, some, some large print guidelines. It's been about five years since ACB has done anything in this space. And so um, the March issue of the Braille Forum contains an article that is written in the proposed um, large print standard. And we welcome your feedback about that. Um, it's in the, in the hard copy issue. You can best you know, read it there, hold it in your hand and, and see how it reads for you. Um, and you can send that feedback to Sharon Lovering as well. And we also have our uh, Voices blog, of course, which I know has been talked about over the weekend, but a great way to share your thoughts, your voice. Um, we've had several posts on the awesome community that is celebrating its second birthday this week on Thursday, so that's exciting. So um, feel free to submit an entry to voices at acb.org. And with that, I will turn it back to you, Cindy. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for covering those extras and uh, just really excited uh, to remind people of this great opportunity to recognize industry and uh, also those that have written really good articles on uh, issues that, you know, of, of interest to those who are reading them, especially those of us who are blind or visually impaired. So thanks for all you do, Katie. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, and just for clarification, the Hollis Liggett Award, not named after me. Um, anyway, not even a little bit before your time, Cindy. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, all right, next we have Connie, or Carrie, sorry, Carrie Muth from Oregon. And Carrie, Connie has been here before, and um, now you are going to talk to us as co chair of the awards committee. and this is a great opportunity to really talk about how we can recognize people in our own sphere, right? People that we know on and observe on a daily basis and give them some of that recognition that we know they deserve. And it's not going to happen unless people write those nomination letters. So talk to us about the awards program. Yeah. So you're so right, Cindy. You know, we do need letters of recommendation and, and nominations are due April 1st. Um, and at the end here, I'll give a couple email addresses for those. And criteria for these awards was out in the January Braille Forum. You can find it 
on the website, all that kind of stuff. But first, I wanted to tell people, um, you know, why am I on this committee, right? And so crazy me, last uh, last year's convention, during the time I thought, hey, maybe I should get more involved nationally. And then I called Dan. Well, you know, that was kind of nuts. You know, he called Dan, asked him for more work, he'll pile it on, right? Because <laughs> why not? Yeah. And, and then he told me, we had a nice conversation about different committees. I was like, oh, you know, I'm interested in this one and this one. He goes, you know, we really need you on awards. And I'm like, I know nothing about awards. <laughs> and, but I got to tell you guys, this has been a lot of fun. Um, Connie is great to work with and Janet Dickelman and actually our whole awards team. And I'll go through those names in a minute, but you know, it is an awesome experience. So I'd really like to encourage anybody out there. If you've thought about stepping up and serving on a committee, do it. You're going to meet some great people and, you know, um, just expand your own knowledge and your own circle. So um, I'm not going to go through each of these because, oh my gosh, I read slow. <laughs> but there's a Robert S. Bray Award, the Dur- Durwood K. McDaniel Ambassador Award, the George Cart Award, James oops, Olson Distinguished Service Award, Marjoram B. Distinguished Service Award, and I know Connie talked some about that one for volunteering. Um, the yeah, one I want to... Oh, go ahead, Cindy. I was just going to say, it's um, Marjorie, I, I, there's an initial, I think it's, now I can't remember, but Beeman. Beeman B. Um, Volunteer. I think that's a Volunteer Recognition Award. And then James R. Olson is the yeah. Distinguished You're Service. Correct. Yeah, Yeah, sorry, sorry. It's okay. <sighs> My computer talks so fast sometimes yeah, I can't keep up. I, I got it. <laughs> So the other award we do is the Affiliate Outreach Award that is usually um, recommended by an affiliate president recognizing a local chapter for um, a service project, essentially. And, you know, I got to tell you, two years ago, so I've never been to an in-person national convention, and I'm so looking forward to Omaha. I bet you are. (laughs) 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 And so... The 2020 convention was the first one and I was listening to the awards and they, they came up and, and I think this award was given to a a chapter affiliate that did a CCTV project, getting them in the hands of people. And I, this really spoke to me because several years ago in my local chapter, we did this same thing and we raised money and we got um, CCTVs and put them in assisted living centers. And this thing has grown and we've been donated CCTVs and, you know, right now there's too many sitting in storage with COVID. It's been hard to get them out into places. But, you know, even one that's 10, 15 years old that, you know, people think, oh, that's not the best. It doesn't do all these fancy things. You know what? It still can make, let somebody read their mail or, you know, whatever they need to do. So, you know, that was just really exciting when I saw that. And, um, you know, just some of these other award winners hearing their stories has been great. And, um <clears throat> It's been a lot of fun working with Katie, too, because she's been um, participating in the different things. If you guys haven't heard, we were on um, Tuesday Topics, and that was fun. I actually took the lead on that one, and that was a lot of fun because Paul did a lot of stuff and had Kim Charlson, and I think Chris Gray was on. I forget who else. Um, But they had a lot of history of ACB history and the history of the awards and all this great information. So I learned so much doing that. Um, At first you think, oh my gosh, a two hour time slot. (laughs) 
<laughs> but it was great. And um, there was a Visibilities that Janet Dickelman took the lead on. And we had um, guests for all of these previous award winners that were our guests and were interviewed and asked questions of. So that was really cool. And Connie did one with Sunday Edition, which was really interesting as well. And they were all different, all um, great fun and very informational. And, you know, we have a community call coming up on the 24th, which uh, Katie's going to be joining us with too, that we'll have some other, you know, previous winners. So I really encourage everybody to come unless you're busy with the birthday bash. (laughs) What time is it it going to be? Nine Eastern. Is that the same time as the birthday bash? I don't know. Birthday bash is this week. Okay, it's the following week. Okay, good. Oh, okay, so that's good. Okay, so well, if I can be there, I will be. Okay, cool, cool. Because yeah, we got. um, Oh, I forget who we have lined up, but you know, it should be fun, and it'll be a a great chance if you have questions, if you're working through nominating somebody, and you know, that's one thing I want to really want to do is when you write your letters, our committee can only. make the decisions who gets these awards based on what's in the letter. So really make sure the letter's a good letter. If you need to have friends help you or other, you know, ACB members, whatever, but, you know, really do a great job. Is there a a word limit count on uh, the letter submissions? I have no clue. I don't think so. Okay. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I want to say that I've had a great, we've been working with a great committee, Connie and myself. um, And, you know, Janet has been a great, well, because this is Connie's first year on the committee too. So So we're going to, we're going to need to wind it down uh, because we have like a minute, a little over a minute. Uh, But thank you, Carrie, so much. Thank you to Katie. And I, before we get out of here, I want to give a plug to our community uh, so many people have been involved in our community. And Colby, why don't you go through how people can get uh, the themselves on our daily schedule or call in to hear it? Sure. So if you want to join and get the daily schedule via email, you can send an email to community at acb.org. We'll let us know you'd like to receive the daily schedule. We'll get you signed up. It's that easy, and you'll get the daily schedule in your inbox. If you know somebody who does not have access to email, they can still participate and hear our schedule via the phone system. So call one 800 424 8666 and you can listen to the schedule by following the prompts. And we hold somewhere between 90 and 100 events every single week. We started March 17th of 2020, Going Strong. We will have a celebration this Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. We hope you'll join us. It is a place where you can expect and receive uh, that is safe, respectful, and welcoming. Thank you, ACB, for giving Colby and I the uh, opportunity to do these Connect shows and for everybody who participated. We appreciate you, and congratulations to everybody involved in DC's, uh, the DC Leadership Conference. Enjoy the rest of it. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. ACB, below each letter, dots, representing the letter in Braille. American Council of the Blind, together for a bright future. ACB Executive Director Eric Bridges and Advisory Board Member Charles Cooper. 
Eric Bridges, Executive Director. Welcome back, Eric Bridges with ACB, and very pleased to be joined by Charles Cooper, ACB's newest advisory board member. Welcome, Charles. Thanks very much, Eric. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, Charles, as with the other advisory board members, uh, interested in having the audience get to know you a little bit better, can you share with folks uh, what you do, your day-to-day nine-to-five role? Charles Cooper, Managing Director, Signal Group. Absolutely. I work at a firm in D.C. called the Signal Group, which is a lobbying and communications firm. I lead the lobbying practice of the firm, and we represent clients across industry, nonprofits, and trade associations on most of the work dealing with Congress and the administration. So really trying to advance mostly policy and funding initiatives that they are uh, focused on. Outstanding. And it's been wonderful to have your participation the last few years at our legislative seminar. Thanks for volunteering your time to, to be with us. It's been great. Excellent. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of the circumstances that brought you to ACB and the advisory board? Absolutely. Well, I've had the great privilege of, in the past, working with both Tony and Clark uh, of the ACB team in other capacities, and I've had a great time getting to know them and better understanding really the, the mission and the impact that ACB has made. And I've really appreciated the opportunity, frankly, to join a really impressive team of leaders, staff, and, and advisory board members in thinking through sort of the future direction of ACB. And I've really enjoyed it, and it's uh, been a great opportunity. And I, I certainly appreciate the, the connections made a long time ago with uh, Tony and Clark to get here. Outstanding. Yeah, and I believe that you joined us, what, in June of last year? Something that's like right. that? That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So um, since you joined and having had previous relationships with, with Tony Stevens and Clark Rockfall, um, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been helping the organization with, the, the, the leadership and staff with since uh, you, you came aboard? Yeah. You know, my background is largely in the government affairs space, and it's also to some degree in the partnership development space. And ACB has a really interesting and forward-looking agenda as it relates to uh, policy, policy on the Hill and the administration. So in some degree, I've been working with the ACB team, thinking through what their policy looks like, what their advocacy strategies look like, and sort of where to go from here. And of course, there's a lot of pros on that team. So uh, I'm partially sitting back and applauding and and partially helping think through some new ideas. But I'm also working with Tony Stevens on thinking about some new partnerships, some partner organizations that could align with the work that ACB is doing and help advance uh, the mission more broadly. Outstanding. And I hear that some of that has to do with our Get Up and Get Moving campaign, right? It does. The, The Get Up and Get Moving campaign is something that's really interesting to me because I do a lot of work in the outdoor recreation space. And uh, really have become a believer in not only the, the impact of recreation, but, but generally the impacts of the outdoors on mental and physical health. And the Get Up and Get Moving campaign certainly is aligned with that. And I think there's so much to be done in this space. And especially as we look at 
the impact that COVID has had. And people are really starting in some ways to rediscover recreation, rediscover the outdoors, not only for physical health and, and mental well-being, but, but also just to connect with people. And it's been really interesting to see. It's been an enormous resurgence of people that are leveraging outdoor recreation specifically. And while I know that's not the entire focus of the campaign, certainly uh, there's a component there. And so I've been really excited to learn about it and to, to think through some potential opportunities there. And it's a really, really interesting opportunity, I think, for, for ACB, your members, and, and certainly your partners. I, I totally agree. Uh, it's, it's been good to sort of, uh, uh, I think, at times be forced to rediscover the outdoors over the last couple of years. But no matter how you got there, as long as, you, as, long as you're getting outside and, and moving around, uh, life seems to be better. Yeah. I, I would just say, Eric, really quick, you know, it's, it's such an important mission. And I think there's so much behind it that, that can really impact individuals, but also as a society, this is where we're, we're moving towards, you know, we're, we're moving towards uh, thinking more, frankly, about our health and our well-being and our time together and uh, sort of long-term implications of the pandemic. And I think that, you know, the Get Up and Get Moving campaign is, is a really, really important step uh, in the right direction to to get people to, to really value and prioritize um, activity and recreation and hopefully to some degree outdoor recreation. But I just really uh, appreciate the work that's been put into that and really the, the success of it is uh, really impressive. Awesome. Well, hey, we appreciate you uh, and your efforts uh, on, on the advisory board. And it's been, it's been great getting to know you a little better over the last year and look forward to your continued work with ACB, Charles. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. And I appreciate it. I appreciate the, uh, the partnership and the opportunity. And I, I really look forward to sitting down and getting to work on, on more initiatives down the road. Thank you. Sounds great. Take care. A logo, ACB in print and braille, American Council of the Blind, together for a bright future. Thank you, Charles, for your interview. Um, yes, and- Go ahead. Oh, you got it, Swatha. All right. And this session is going to just talk more with Charles about the political outlook for 2022 and beyond. Um, yeah. So first off, Charles. Um, yeah. So tell us a little about um, the party with Congress and um, the future or midterms and all that. Great. Thank you uh, so much, and thanks really to the entire ACB team for not only putting on such a wonderful conference, but but also uh, really helping advance key issues uh, that policymakers are are focused on. We I really appreciate it, and I always really value my my time with ACB and uh, and these conferences. So thank you very much for the for the invitation to. Uh, to be here today, and I really, uh, I really uh, hope that we can have a good dynamic discussion uh, going forward. So I thought I would I would walk through really sort sort of four issues, uh, and then maybe have some questions and answers if that that works for everybody. The first will be an overview of the 2022 election and what might happen, and some key indicators to to continue to monitor. Secondly, 
I would uh, I'd pivot to discuss the policy agenda that we should expect for the rest of the year. Uh, third is to discuss a little bit about some, some tips and advice on being a really strong advocate and, uh, and, then, and then move into some questions and, and answers, hopefully. The, I should start by just giving a little bit of background on myself. I, uh, I worked on Capitol Hill for uh, about 11 years, a couple years in the Senate and the rest in the House. And then moved into a public affairs firm where I lead the government relations side of the company. And I've been both a consumer and a consumer of lobbying and a, a producer of lobbying, I guess to, to say. And so I really appreciate and understand the work that you all are doing, um, not only with your policymakers in D.C., but, but hopefully with uh, folks back home as well. And I know we're going we're gonna to get into that. But first, let me, let me talk about what so many are, are sort of uh, currently discussing, which is the 2022 election. It may surprise some of us to know that the 2022 election is only 238 days away. Uh, in fact, the, the 2024 election is 966 days away for anybody that's counting. But uh, 238 days away is, is not a lot of time. I mean, when you think about out of that 230 day, eight days, a fraction of those, Congress is in session. Um, and right around this time, you start seeing elections really gear up and, and, uh, and hire their staff. And they're obviously in full fundraising mode. In fact, some, some elections have already had their primaries. So uh, things are really moving in the 22 election uh, year even though, you know, maybe the, the onslaught of advertising uh, hasn't started yet, it certainly will very soon. And we're, we're going to start um, hearing a lot more about what's happening locally on the, on the campaign trail. There's a handful of things that, that I would call sort of indicators on where this election is going to go. Um, the first is retirements. Right, right around now, and and uh, and for the couple months preceding, when there's a big election on the horizon, you start seeing a number of retirements, especially uh, in the House side, because members of Congress start observing the realities of the political landscape and start wondering, do I want to hang around if I'm not in the majority? And uh, do I want to go through another difficult uh, campaign cycle? So I always look to retirements as one key indicator early on as to where things are going. And right now in the House, there are 30 Democratic retirements and 18 Republican retirements. Uh, that's pretty significant. If you think of 30 Democratic retirements um, and 18 Republicans, just from retirements alone, there will be 48 new members next year. Um, and in the Senate, there's one Democrat retiring and six Republicans retiring. So if you are in the House and you're in the Democratic caucus and you're seeing, you know, a, a good chunk of your your uh, colleagues retiring, there there's some immediate concern about what the 
uh, politics on the ground uh, are, are what politics are emerging on the ground. So retirements are, are one indicator. The other is how many, how many seats are up for re-election and uh, how many are at risk. And in the House, all seats are up for re-election. So that's not really a core standard in the House. But, but there's a good number at risk. And again, um, Democrats share the majority of that, of that at-risk uh, portion of congressional seats. In the Senate, there are 34 seats uh, up for uh, the 2022 election, and 14 are Democratic and 20 are Republican. And so when observing the, the 2022 election by numbers alone, obviously Republicans have more to defend in the, in the Senate and Democrats have more to defend in the House in terms of what's at risk. That being said, we're not necessarily seeing that in trends. Republicans are well positioned in the House, and it's right now sort of going back and forth between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate. So we'll have to we'll have to um, pay a little bit more closer attention on that one. So again, retirements, uh, what what's what uh, seats are up for election also important, and then the third is historical data, and I am a a big believer in studying sort of the data behind these elections. And the data tells an interesting story. In fact, since President Truman's midterm election in 1946, only five midterm elections have gained seats in either chamber for the president's party. Um, Kennedy gained three seats in 62. Nixon gained two seats in 1970. Reagan gained one seat in 1982. Uh, Bush gained eight seats uh, in the House and two seats in the Senate. And Trump gained two seats in the Senate. All others lost. Um, in fact, all but President Bush in 2002 lost seats in the House while gaining seats in the Senate. And the average uh, of that loss was pretty significant. When you look at those numbers uh, in more recent history, and I'm not going to bore everybody with just constant data, but just give me, give me one more minute here. Um, when you look at those numbers in, in more recent history, the trends are even more stark uh, for the president's party. Bill Clinton lost 52 House seats and two Senate seats. As I mentioned, Bush was a bit of an anomaly and won in both chambers. Obama lost 63 seats in the House and six seats in the Senate. And Trump lost 40 seats in the House and won two seats in the Senate. Um, since that President Clinton midterm election, there's been an average loss of 44 seats in the House and two seats in the Senate for the president's party. So all that is to say, when looking at historical data, the historical data does not favor uh, Democrats either. And of course, these are pretty odd political times, and voters could prove historical trends wrong, as they did in, in, uh, in uh, President Bush's election, where he, he won in both the House and Senate. But Democrats certainly face an uphill battle against current political trends if you're just looking, looking at history. Um, there's a, a number of issues that are going to impact the election. And I sort of highlight six, but there's probably more than that. One, and it's always here, is the economy. Um, things like gas prices, inflation, jobs, GDP. The economy is the, always the top issue of how people vote. And I don't anticipate that will be any different. And I also believe just personally that People vote the economy on the day that they vote, not 
what it was five months ago, four months ago, or a year ago. They, they vote how the economy is impacting them when they vote, however they vote. And so the economy is one of those that's sort of a late-breaking issue. Second is national security. And obviously, um, the emerging situation in Ukraine is concerning. And, um, you know, voters will consider that. Third in my, in my uh, thought process is the ability for both sides to sell what I would call policy wins. And that could be passing something, it could be stopping something. But the ability for them to highlight policy wins on the campaign trail. For Democrats, that will certainly be how they sell the infrastructure package as a core win. Um, and that's something that they are certainly out there talking about. Fourth is healthcare, also a constant issue on the campaign trail. Uh, fifth is COVID, even now, sort of how, what the response to COVID was, what the impact of COVID was, et cetera. And sixth, sort of an emerging issue is energy independence. And I think there's going to be a lot of, a lot of discussion around, around uh, energy independence. Uh, I would also say that, you know, redistricting is going to play a role. So it's not just about seats that are up, and it's not just about who's more, most vulnerable. But a lot of these districts are being shifted around. Some seats are being taken away. Some are being added. Uh, a lot of those are sort of tied up in the process right now. But redistricting will play a role, and it will certainly provide an opportunity for both parties to, to shift a little bit and, uh, and play in some new territory. Again, it's still a long way away to the 2022 election. And, um, you know, we will continue to monitor how that, how that progresses. I think, you know, we are probably going to experience some big changes in the House of Representatives. If there is a shift in the majority, just by the way that the House works, everything changes. So uh, all the committees will be run differently. The uh, who determines what's on the floor, how long it's on the floor, what amendments will be passed, will be put in the, in the hands of different people, and uh, the entire agenda will shift. In the Senate, of course, if there was a change of majority, it would shift as well, but to a lesser extent, because they still require 60 votes to pass most things. And so therefore, um, the Senate would still require strong bipartisan support to move most issues. The House would not. And so it'd be a pretty significant change if uh, those historical trends prove accurate. And I would also say that for the remainder of the time between now and the election, there's a good amount of opportunity for policy wins and losses. And I think uh, I would consider some of that as not necessarily things that reach the president's desk, but also policies that are used for for messaging. And I I would uh, assume that there will be plenty of that between now and the election. So let me shift to talk a little bit about those, that policy agenda and what we can expect there. Uh, I think there's a handful of issues that uh, will certainly be at the top of this agenda. We, we continue to focus on COVID. And uh, in fact, as early as this week, there'll be an additional spending package that passes uh, that will help address COVID issues. Uh, secondly, you know, for the rest of this month and into next month, the Supreme Court nomination will take a lot of time and focus 
uh, in the Senate. So we can expect sort of both the vetting process, which is happening now, and the hearing process, which is expected to start later in the month. Uh, we can expect a lot of uh, attention will shift to the Supreme Court nomination. I think it goes without saying, just looking at previous ones, this actually does take a lot of time. And while the Senate does move on with business, I think it will be at a little bit of a slower pace when the Supreme Court nominee is moving through the process. Um, there's also a China competition bill that is, uh, has passed the House and passed the Senate and sort of behind the scenes they're negotiating it. But this is probably the biggest bipartisan win opportunity uh, left for the year until the, the election. And so there's uh, a number of policymakers on both sides of the aisle that have really prioritized this and are moving forward. Given sort of the geopolitical landscape right now, I think it probably adds some pressure to pass this bill. But um, this is, you know, part supply chain, part domestic manufacturing, and part um, international relations in a sense. And I think uh, both sides are really coming together on this. So that is one that, that could move. Additionally, the implementation of the bipartisan infrastructure bill is uh, something that the administration certainly is taking a lot of time uh, to address. And we are experiencing those implementation dates throughout this year and into next year. And as you may know, that bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, was funded over five years. So uh, this is not a, a near-term uh, bill only, but it's something that uh, getting it getting it moving, if you will, will take, um, will take some time. Ukraine response is also a top-tier issue, and it's unclear uh, how that will move forward. But they did just pass a spending package um, that would assist the Department of Defense in some things. And I think uh, Congress is very focused on Ukraine. So as that uh, situation evolves, I think Congress will get more involved. Uh, also, there's a lot of trade and tariff issues uh, related to products that are being imported from China that are scheduled to be considered uh, by the U.S. Trade Representative's Office. And that is a really big issue for, for uh, business and manufacturers. So something that I just list because it, it will take uh, a lot of attention. Um, the National Defense Authorization Act and what I think will become an end-of-year post-election package is uh, also probably a, the biggest opportunity for organizations to uh, sort of load up a, <laughs> a piece of legislation or two that move towards the end of the year. After the election, when there is no or not as much uh, political vulnerability and political risk out there, people tend to come together and pass an end-of-year package. And unclear what would be in that. That will be funding, policy, combination of both. But uh, that will happen, and sometimes that gets aligned with the Defense Authorization Act, which has to happen before the end of the year. So uh, that is a, a big opportunity. Uh, just a few, three more things I wanted to mention in this regard. The uh, president's budget is being delivered to Congress at some point next week, we think around the 23rd. And the president's budget is, is his blueprint on where his priorities will be for the ne next year. It's never really passed, per se. It's, uh, it's just a blueprint. Congress ultimately decides where to spend the money. But it will be an important indication 
of where the White House is going to prioritize their efforts and and uh, their policy positions uh, for the rest of the year. Uh, traditionally, after that budget, the appropriations committees in the House get together and start building these spending packages. And I think because of the election year, that's probably not going to happen. So uh, they just passed a big appropriations bill. I think the, the next appropriations bill will have to wait a while. And then lastly are messaging bills. These are bills that are likely not to be going to be signed into law, probably in some indication don't have any, any intention of being signed into law, but are really used to um, provide solid messaging for policymakers to campaign on. And that is a, a very normal thing before an election. And I think uh, there will be a good amount of that. So before we turn it over to questions, I'm just going to quickly talk about being a really good advocate. And I know from my experience with ACB, uh, there are great advocates and uh, the work that is being done is, is uh, just awesome. But a few things that I always want to tell folks, um, first and foremost, is advocacy should really be an on, ongoing discussion and not just a, a one and done, you know, one meeting a year because the conference is around and then, uh, and then waiting till the next year. When, when, when you do that, what happens is the million people that have talked to the, that policymaker's office in between sort of get a lot more of the attention. Uh, so try to keep the conversation going. Um, keep them updated, the office updated on what, what you're doing, how the issue is evolving. Um, manufacture reasons to, to reach out and ask questions about if they've had a chance to review what you provided them. Um, also connecting the issues locally, you know, making sure that your members of Congress and senators understand the local and state impact of these issues or maybe the opportunity costs of them not, not passing. Uh, connecting with the office in D.C. Where the, where the policy staff is and also the office back home where uh, the liaisons to constituents are. Uh, both really important and serve really important uh, uh, roles in a congressional office. Um, I only say this because I'm a previous past staffer, and I I uh, am trying to trying to push my own uh, my <laughs> my own position in, in society, I guess. But I think uh, staffers are as important as members of Congress. Um, they certainly. Uh, help make a lot of decisions. They are the ones on the ground that are really working these issues. And so if you're meeting with staffers instead of members of Congress, like I, I really, in a lot of ways, equate the two. And in some sense, because staffers are, are really the ones doing so much of the, of the work prior to the member of Congress making a decision on what he or she will do. I think it's just so important to get in front of the staff. So if you're meeting with staff, great. If you're meeting with members of Congress, also great. But uh, I just don't want to discount the, the role that, that uh, staff are doing. And then lastly, before we, we move into questions, I just say the, the work that you're doing is really vital. And I hear a lot of people that feel like they get lost. I'm sorry, that they get lost in the advocacy uh, space. That they're not quite sure if people are actually responding to, to what they're advocating about. And I can understand why. Um, 
you know, this year alone in the House and Senate, there were almost 11,000 bills introduced, um, this Congress. And, you know, there's been about a, 1,100 votes. And most of those votes were procedural. So a very few number of votes on, on actual bills and amendments. And so I can understand why some people would think that. But the reality is, constituents really matter to policymakers. And policymakers can't be experts on every issue. And uh, on some of the issues that you're working on, on your, on your great agenda, there's, there's a, a pretty narrow set of experts. And so one of the roles that you have is really educating your policymakers on why these issues matter and what the uh, impact of these issues are to constituents back home. And that's just really important. And so the work that, that you're doing uh, I can't, I can't overstate how how important it is and how impressive it is. So, with that, I will uh, turn it back over for questions. Thank you so much, Charles, uh, for your analysis of the remainder of the 117th Congress, as well as the landscape here in 2022. Uh, I have very few questions left from following your presentation, but I know that plenty of our members will. So folks, if you have questions, please email Janet Dickelman at questions at acb.org. And you can also call or text Janet at 651-428-5059. And while we're letting those questions come in, Swatha, do you have any questions for Charles? I and when do. When Swatha's I, done, I do have one already. All right, that works. Um, so, Charles, you mentioned the um, Supreme Court nomination process, and um, we've heard a lot about this nominee, Katanji Brown Jackson, being historic, and Big Biden, President Biden was very focused on nominating a woman of color to the bench um, and she has had work um, on discriminations in the past um, especially with regard to Uber and wheelchair access um, so I just want to um, get your thoughts on how her nomination and her confirmation and once, she, once she's confirmed um, how it's going to affect kind of our work as advocates and um, Congress in general, how it can affect um, midterms or um, landscape. Great question, Swafa. Thank you very much for for asking it. It certainly is an historic uh, nomination the president has made. And I think it's going to be a successful nomination. I think uh, she will certainly, I I believe, will get through the, the confirmation process and uh, in the Senate and will ultimately be uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court. Uh, it takes a little while, and that process is, as as we've all uh, experienced in the past, is pretty uh, pretty uh, robust and takes some time. And we will be hearing much more from her and her advocates and uh, the senators uh, between now and then. But certainly the response among senators already has been uh, pretty positive, especially on the Democratic side, which are the ones that have the ability to, to push over, over the finish line. Um, so 
that's sort of how I think the confirmation will will go. Of course, you know, I'm sort of a, an observer here, like everybody else. But I, I, uh, it it seems like it seems like this is moving in that direction. Uh, in terms of what the impact will be on both uh, the election and uh, your issues, you know, I would I would almost take a step back from the second part of your question on your issues. I, um, I uh, always had a belief that I'd go to law school and I took the LSAT and after seeing my score, uh, it ended my dreams of going to law school. But so it's tough for me to, uh, to be a, re- a real, uh, real, uh, you know, good uh, predictor of how the Supreme Court will uh, adjust given her, her presence on the bench. And that's something that I think, um, especially, especially as we, we move forward, we're going to, we're going to know a lot more about, but I, I really don't have a lot of, a lot, a lot of insight there candidly. So I'm going to pass on that question. The, the, uh, the, the one that I will talk about is, you know, will this have an impact on, on the election? And the reality is Supreme court picks do have an impact. Um, people, it's really the only, not the only, but probably the biggest nomination that a president can make that, you know, a lot of people sort of, uh, you know, locally in communities really pay attention to and understand because they view Supreme Court nominees as, as really sort of tipping the scales on, on some issues. And I think that uh, this sort of works both ways. You know, it energizes um, Democrats to have a, a new Supreme Court pick, just like it has Republicans in the past when they did. And depending on, on the vote, obviously Republicans sometimes campaign against that. So hard to tell what the end result will be, but certainly uh, Supreme Court is always, and this will be no exception, be a, uh, a focus of the 2022 election. And Charles, one more question related to this topic before Janet offers the audience question. Um, I guess to build off of Swatha's question, is there a level of you know, political capital that's, that'll be used by the administration or by Democrats to confirm this candidate? And does that impact the domestic policy agenda um, that may move some of our issues forward? Yeah, so... You know, traditionally, I would say yes, but this has been a little bit of a different, a different process. Not not just with this, this, uh, this nominee, but just with everything that's been in Congress. Um, you know, getting the infrastructure bill over the finish line took a significant amount of political capital. Getting the omnibus package, all twelve appropriations bills uh, funded, took a lot of political capital. I think. You know, coming together around Ukraine to some degree took some political capital. So will this obviously require the president to, to work it? Absolutely. And, and the White House is certainly doing that. Um, is this one that maybe comes with as much controversy as, as some others have in the past? I don't think so. But again, I'm, I'm monitoring it in the same way everybody else is, uh, through the news. But I, I don't think that this is something that will use up all the political capital that exists in the White House. I think the White House is going to spend a lot of that political capital trying to get um, 
the COVID package passed, trying to get the, the China uh, in a, uh, competition bill passed, and potentially a number of other things before the year is over. Um, I, I think that sort of uh, traditional metric of political capital can only be used uh, a number of times. I, I think that that's not necessarily accurate anymore just because of the very bizarre ebbs and flows of policy that we've seen happening over the last several years. Thank you. Janet, All right. Well, apparently a lot of people are interested in the elections because I have a question from Peter in Wisconsin asking how you feel the findings on the January 6, 2021 commission will or could impact the elections. It's a great, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, because without saying as, as someone who used to work in the Capitol, I, I've uh, paid, paid a good amount of attention to some of the proceedings there. Um, you know, that that is something that is a little hard to determine. Um, I think there's a lot of people focused on the January 6th um, uh, commission or committee. But I, I also think that, uh, you know, both parties to some degree have been really focused on a lot of other issues. And so uh, will there be certainly findings that will be of interest to voters? I think so. I, I believe there will be. Will those findings, you know, impact the average election back home? I'm just not, I'm just not sure. Um, that's a tough one to evaluate, especially in a, in a time when there is so much uh, sort of crowded noise in the policy space. But certainly there will be a lot to report there. Certainly there'll be a lot of coverage of it. How it impacts the individual election, I think, is yet to be determined. And I just got another election-related question from Charles, and he wants to know how you feel the elections are going to be impacted by the constant um, conversation about the 2020 elections being stolen. You know, that is... uh, a narrative that in, in some places continues to, to be present. And it certainly has activated um, a, a group of uh, voters significantly that, um, that are very focused on that. I think generally speaking, and I can't speak for you know, the Republican Party, but I think a, a, a good portion of the Republican Party has moved on, on from that and is really focused on trying to put together sort of what the agenda is going forward and not as much sort of what happened in the last election. Uh, so I think with a, a, uh, a segment of voters, certainly there will continue to be a focus on, on uh, some of those issues from 20, 2020. But I, I generally think that people are, are looking to other issues to run on. Thank you. And I have one other question, although I'm not really sure Charles can answer this, but maybe it's more a Clark and Swatha question. But a um, gentleman from Berkeley called me and wanted to know what we can do to help our blind friends, compatriots in the Ukraine and Romania and Poland. 
That is uh, an interesting question and one yes. that I think that uh, our immediate past president, Kim Charlson, and the World Blind Union are, are probably, probably well situated to assist us with. So I'll be happy to forward that along, Janet. I will do so. And that is all the questions I have for the moment. And I'm sure more, more will be coming in. We'll Charles, a couple, in. a couple times you've mentioned now the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act um, that was passed last year. That's certainly something that our transportation, as well as pedestrian and environmental access committees and members focused on you know, transportation and environmental access issues are paying close attention to especially with the the omnibus now passed and the funding that will flow to the state and local governments. Uh, I'm curious, so at the the national and the federal level, do you see that impacting the ability to move transportation, additional transportation-related priorities forward, whether that's something like a, a national framework for autonomous vehicles or uh or changes uh, to the paratransit system, uh, such as our legislative imperative, the Disability Access to Transportation Act from last year? I do. You know, I think, um, knock on wood, uh, transportation remains one of those issues that really does bring supporters from both sides of the aisle that really want to work together. And obviously, it's something that impacts every district uh, in Congress. And it's one that, uh, while at times has become slightly partisan, generally speaking, it has a lot of constructive policymakers that come together to really think through meaningful uh, funding and policy options to make transportation not only better, stronger, but more accessible for people. So I I do think there's a little momentum uh, behind transportation policy, and that does always uh, present more opportunity to take that momentum and shift it towards adjacent issues. And so I do think that there is some opportunity to do that. Obviously, the, the autonomous vehicle legislation or that policy debate has been ongoing and, and has been close at a number of points, but continues to, continues to be sort of a hot topic of discussion among policymakers. I, I do think there are opportunities to pass these sort of more targeted bills, whether that comes between now and the election, hard to tell, or whether that could be something um, that comes after the election when when people uh, in Congress are a little bit more willing to to uh, add a number of things to the to the agenda that maybe they hadn't during the year. Uh, total, a little bit unclear, but I I do you know on a lot of your imperatives, I look at the end of the year as an opportunity to, to start moving things. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, one is on some of these, it's, it's become increasingly tough to pass standalone bills uh, in the House and Senate, and things are largely being packaged together. And, uh, you know, a lot of that opportunity to, to be added to one of those packages will probably come uh, towards the end of the year and not prior to the election. But, uh, you know, if everything's about bipartisan support, to be able to move now. So if there's enough bipartisan support and both sides come, come together, Clark, uh, and I know you've been working on these issues with both sides of, uh, of Congress, I, uh, you know, timing is less of an issue. 
That's great. Thank you. Swatha, any additional questions for Charles? Yeah. Um, you, uh, you talked earlier about how, um, like, there are several thousand bills or maybe less than that that are produced every year and that um, a lot of those don't get passed, don't make it past, like, committee or, like a committee or uh, make it out of, like, to a vote. Um, can you sort of talk about, like, on the impact of the messaging bills? Because I know, like, a lot of, a lot of people um, think that, oh, it doesn't pass, it's, 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 it's kind of last, like, the end of the world, I guess. So um, it's the impact of messaging bills and um, impact of, like, using awareness of certain issues through legislation. Yeah. So, you know, interestingly enough, I, when I was working on Capitol Hill, I, I always tried to develop strategies to move legislation based on, you know, trying to produce some secret formula around how bills move. And interestingly enough, very unlike, you know, uh, maybe the, <laughs> maybe most, most sectors out there, there, there really isn't a formula for how these bills move. Um, there's a lot of what I would call inputs, a lot of sort of uh, factors that go into these bills. And, you know, some of those drive action and some of those don't. And it's not really, uh, it really depends on the bill. There's not, there's not some, some critical mass or threshold. In some cases, a ton of co-sponsors matter, but there's also cases where there are no co-sponsors and the bill gets signed up. So it's hard to, I'm, 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 uh, I'm going to get your question, but just a, a note on the process. It's hard to really define. What's the perfect process to get a bill moving? And we do know, however, that there's a number of things that really matter. Uh, right now, it's really important to have bipartisan, um, bipartisan support. It's also really, and if not, it's really important that there's not partisan opposition. Um, we also know that it's really important that um, bills have a connection to uh, districts and states so that a member of Congress is not sort of championing an ethereal concept, but something that is real back home for their constituents. I think it's also really important that, um, that bills are constructed in a way that do have some messaging value. And this is getting back to your question, Swatha. The, the, uh, the Congress has, has changed over the last 20 years. And, you know, maybe prior to that, there were a lot more people that were very policy focused. And now you're having a lot more people that are focused on policy, obviously, or they wouldn't have a job, but they're also very messaging focused. And the reason for that is because they know that they can advance issues, not just through the committee process and amendment process in the House and Senate floor, but they can advance issues by elevating them in the public through messaging. So I think the messaging bills are really important. It, it helps educate people. It helps bring attention to issues. You know, there's a political aspect to it too, which you can't understate, which is, you know, it forces people to vote on an issue and take, take a position. But messaging, messaging bills are, are used by both sides to, to elevate priorities. And that's really what they do. So, it, it helps, I would say, move the debate, not, not necessarily move the bill. 
and and uh, Congress has a platform to do that. But when looking at bills more broadly, you know, it's just it's vital that there's a methodical strategy behind it that leverages organizations like ACB and folks throughout the country that are willing to advocate for it and really educate policymakers on what the bills do and why it's important. I, I said there's thousands of bills that are introduced. A fraction of those make it to committee, uh, even smaller fraction make it to the Senate, Senate or House floor. And, you know, the one, one thing that uh, the ones that, that get across the finish line probably all have in common is they have real champions that not just when, when you're there, but when nobody else is in the room are really pushing to have these done. And that comes based on great relationships with advocates like all of you and great education from organizations like ACP. Thank you, Clark. Janet, do we have any other questions? We do not at the moment, no. All right. Well, I think that that is a, a great note to end on and potentially even end a bit early here today on the final day of the ACB Leadership Conference as well as the Legislative Seminar. Um, so everyone, again, thank you so much for your time and participation over the past few days. Uh, again, thank you to our sponsors, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase at the presidential level, Vanda Pharmaceutical at the congressional level, and Vispero at the, as a Beltway sponsor. And again, uh, Perkins School for the Blind, uh, thank you for uh your support, your special support in allowing our broadcast control center to be placed on your campus in Massachusetts. Uh, Charles, once again, thank you for your involvement on the ACB advisory board, as well as uh, your time and expertise in talking with ACB. And we look forward to working with you as we go forward here and approach these midterms. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. And for everyone out there, uh, one final call for everyone wanting to enter into the the raffle for ACB's monthly monetary support program, uh, creating uh, or becoming a new member of the monthly monetary support program or increasing your contributions. uh, It makes everything we do here at ACB possible it makes events like this possible, as well as supports the, the advocacy efforts that we're all undertaking here with our legislative imperatives. So to, uh, to either create an account or increase your dollar amount for the monthly monetary support program, you can email askacbmms at gmail.com, or you can call 888 888- Nine 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 three one nine zero. And as we wrap up here, Swatha, and we say thank you to everyone last one final last time, it's important that we close this out like we do all of the advocacy update podcasts, which folks can find via their favorite podcast player. Keep advocating. Okay. Hola. Tu- Hoy tenemos uh, una especial, um, una guest. Yeah, yeah, fin de la conferencia. 
Tony Steven. Sí, uh, estoy aquí con Swatha. Gracias, Swatha, por su ayuda con uh, la Legislative Seminar. Y me llamo Antonio Stevens con la ACB. Y uh, estoy la directora de Development and Communications. Comunicaciones. Uh, yeah, una comunicaciones. And, and uh, aquí uh, por una, you know, esperando por mi Uber. Entonces uh, yo quiero venir uh, en esta en esta reunión con su y Gabe, y, y dice uh, gracias, gracias por uh, las transacciones este, este fin de semana y esta semana, y también por todos trabajando uh, con la conference, porque la conference, uh, ACB Leadership Conference, fue fantástico. So, muchas gracias a su y Gabe y todas las personas. Sí, um, me alegré mucho que la conferencia se Está yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Entonces, um, cuando esperando por Gabe, uh, you know, estoy aquí. Sí. Es Gabe mi dos. Companion, sí. Yeah, su compañero. Sí, compañero. Yeah, yeah, bueno. <laughs> so. Oh, Gabe está aquí, pienso que. Ah, Gabe está aquí también. Hola, Gabe. Pienso que Gabe está esperando uh, por el micrófono. Uh, ya, ya soy bueno. Hola, <risa> ¿cómo estás? Bien, Suaza, ¿y tú qué tal? Bien, muy, muy cansada, pero muy bien. <risa> y, y nos acompaña aquí Tony. Sí, sí, estoy aquí también. You know, uh, dice gracias a usted y Suaza por uh, todo trabajando esta, esta, esta semana y este fin de semana. Uh, por la conferencia, you know, fue sí. fantástico, uh, you know, uh, oyendo, uh, you know, en, en la noche, todas las noches, y me gusta su programa mucho, so, gracias. <risa> gracias. a ti, Tony. Tony, ya que te tenemos aquí hoy día, cuéntanos un poquito, tú viviste en México un tiempo, ¿cierto? Sí, sí. Um, hoy tuvimos um, una presentación um, de Alison Barkov para um, de el, um, administra administración de vi vivir um, en com comunidad um, mm -hmm. no sé cómo uh, es todo um, y um, entonces um, tenemos um, una panel con um, Kim Charlson y la um, Unión Mundial de Ciegos Mm -hmm. y, um, como co sobre COVID la sociedad sí, y la um, sí. sociedad de la pandemia um, y Gabe, um, ¿qué piensas um, sobre los dos? Bueno, el, el, el tema que Kim Charlson estuvo moderando es de mucho interés y desde que salieron eh, desde que fueron eh, lanzadas estas pruebas de COVID en casa. Eh, ese ha sido un tema que es, se ha tocado mucho aquí en ACB porque eh, entendemos que el tema de la pandemia es un tema de emergencia mundial en el cual hay que actuar rápidamente, pero siempre, lastimosamente, accesibilidad eh, siempre queda como, como, un, como un pasa a segundo plano. Entonces es importante que ACB esté abogando para lograr que estos eh, tests de 
de COVID sean accesibles y si no de buscar un, una forma en la cual podamos independientemente hacer uso de, estos, de estas Además. pruebas en casa. Sí. Y um, entonces um, el um, panel um, sobre la, sobre la, la pandemia... Um, Mm -hmm. Tenemos una panel de legal advocacy, abogada, abogacía, abogacía um, mm -hmm. de ley, ¿sí? Eso fue uno de mis favoritos, Suaza, porque no mm -hmm. sé eh, si tú sabes que yo, eh, originalmente en mi país, Honduras, yo era abogado. Bueno, soy sí. abogado todavía, sí, pero no, aquí no puedo ejercer por la diferencia de legislación. El sistema estadounidense está basado en el sistema de common law de los británicos y en Latinoamérica seguimos el código napoleónico, el código civil, código romano. Y, pero sí, me apasiona mucho ese tema, así que me encantó, me encantó ese panel, me encantó esa, esa exposición acerca de, de la perspectiva legal de lo que es la abogacía que ICB está haciendo y sobre todo... Eh, Hoy que nos preparamos, estamos a la víspera de empezar nuestras visitas virtuales a nuestros representantes en el Congreso, eh, tener un, una visión clara por personas expertas de cómo, es el, el, cómo está el terreno legal de la abogacía en Washington para que nosotros podamos estar preparados y saber cuál es nuestro rol como como personas que estamos abogando por la comunidad. Sí, y um, entonces um, tenemos, tuvimos um, los breakouts o las reuniones um, concurrentes um, sí. y ¿escuchas uno de or, or los...? Es, um, Sabes que pude escuchar dos, no pude escuchar la última con Jeff Tom. Porque en eso, porque hoy fue un día también normal de trabajo para mí, tuve reuniones y, pero sí estuve, estuve escuchando uh, otra vez eh, uh, la de Get Up, Get Moving, que uh -huh. es eh, nuestra campaña fuerte de, como hemos venido mencionando estos días, de levantarse y ponerse en movimiento, salud para la comunidad y, y está el, 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 me encanta que la campaña está llena de energía y llena de mucho, uh, mucho entusiasmo <ríe> y, y se está haciendo que la gente se, se, se ponga eh, en movimiento, justo como la campaña lo dice, se levanta y se ponga en movimiento. Y... También escuché el, el primer eh, panel, eh, si me recuerdas, Suaza. Con Clark y um, los, um, sobre los, um, la intersección mm. um, de la privacidad. De la privacidad y seguridad, sí, 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 sí buenísimo. Eh, voy, a, voy a hablar un poco de, de Ira para las personas hispanas que no, que no conocen de Ira. Eh, Clark y Suaza estuvieron hablando con uh, invitados de dos compañías que, es, que han, han sonado muchísimo en la comunidad um, de ACB y en la comunidad de personas ciegas en general, Suaza, porque eh, IRA es un servicio 
que si bien es cierto es pagado, uh, me gustó mucho que están tratando de lograr que organismos grandes, eh, compañías, instituciones gubernamentales, eh, contraten con IRA para poder eh, subsidiar un poco el costo a nosotros, los usuarios. Y la diferencia entre IRA y otros servicios gratuitos o pedirle ayuda a alguien eh, casualmente, a una amistad, a un familiar, es la privacidad, que IRA tiene una de las consideraciones más grandes, es la privacidad de nuestra información, porque ellos acceden, justo con lo que hablábamos al principio, su hasta del, del, de las pruebas de COVID, tienen acceso a nuestra información de salud, uh, a veces a nuestra información personal, entonces eh, ese es un, un tema que por contrato IRA está, está garantizando nuestra privacidad y la seguridad de nuestra información. Mm, sí. um, ¿Usas IRA, Kate? Sí, sí uso IRA. <risas> uh, sí, no uso IRA, pero um, yo quiero um, investigar uh, que IRA, IRA, IRA ofrece um, para personas con personas, personas con, con baja visión o son ciegas. Uh -huh. um, sí, bueno, para mencionar un poco y para los que no saben, IRA es un servicio que te conecta con un agente que eh, también, aparte de la privacidad y la garantía de seguridad, también es un servicio que eh, los agentes que están ayudando en el otro lado de la línea son uh, personas que han tenido un entrenamiento no es eh, que, que es, lo hacen por, 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 por intuición, sino que lo hacen por intuición, sí, pero con entrenamiento. Entonces son uh -huh. entrenados para saber cómo dar direcciones a una persona ciega o baja visión, eh, cómo mantener la, la seguridad, por ejemplo, cuando estás afuera en una, en una, en una calle o estás caminando. O tienen... El Starbucks o el aeropuerto, sí. Sí, en, en, y tienen muchos sitios en los cuales eh, ellos cobran por minuto, pero tienen muchos sitios, aeropuertos, farmacias, tiendas, en los cuales lo llaman, ellos llaman IRA Free Zones, que son áreas en las cuales no te cobran esos minutos. Y los puedes usar para hacer compras, um, para, no sé, ver el color de alguna camisa o alguna chaqueta, eh, para leer información de algún documento que no sea accesible, incluso de tarjetas, y ellos son, guardan mucho la seguridad. Entonces, sí, es un servicio en el cual ellos también, aparte de, aparte de, la, de la cámara, porque ellos se conectan contigo por medio de una cámara, también tienen un sistema de GPS, tienen mapas, entonces ellos están viendo tu, local, tu locación, no solo por medio de la cámara, sino por medio de tu GPS, de tu GPS, y te están pudiendo, así te pueden eh, dirigir mejor, por ejemplo, cuando estás navegando en un aeropuerto, en un centro comercial, en una calle. Sí. Um, y el último panel um, o reunión es um, con Charles Cooper, um, una sí. um, miembro de advisory board uh, sí, del consejo de, de la junta consejera sí sí consejera sí um, y Charles ab, uh, habló um, sobre el political politi 
al um, ambiente, ambiente política y uh -huh. um, el midterm, la elecciones, elecciones de midterm. Sí, sí ya son este año. Sí. <risa> ¿Sabes que hoy, hoy el tema estuvo, hoy el día estuvo bastante cargado de mucho, de mucho contenido legal y político? Y son dos temas que me apasionan mucho a mí, la política, yo he estado involucrado en política varias veces en la historia de mi vida y, y bueno, la parte legal también me apasiona. Eh, también estuvo, um, aparte de, de, de esa parte de la política, también se habló durante el día de lo que es eh, el acceso a poder votar de forma secreta e independiente. Y creo que también escuchamos un poco de uh, Brian de Democracy Live, que yo tuve el orgullo de participar como, como un Education Outreach Consultant, un, eh, básicamente un, un, un representante de Democracy Live aquí en el estado de la Florida hace unos cuantos años. Y hay, ellos han um, creado sistemas de votación, tanto en persona como Uh, a distancia, que son seguros que nos permiten a las personas que somos ciegas y baja visión, votar ejercer nuestro derecho de votar en las elecciones de este país en forma secreta e independiente, que es algo sumamente importante porque es un derecho constitucional y no, tú vale Oh, no, lo otro que te voy a decir que me encantó mucho escuchar también, eh, como ahora que mencionas parte del de consejo de el, la Junta Consejera, el Advisory Board, eh, también me gustó mucho escuchar a, a Matt Henley, sí. que es un abogado y es parte de, de, de la Junta Consejera de, de ACB y habló mucho de la parte legal de lo que es la abogacía y el trabajo de abogar que ACB está haciendo y que vamos a hacer en esos próximos tres días en nuestras visitas virtuales. Sí, y um, es mi favorita también, porque uh -huh. um, cuando yo estoy en, cuando yo estuve en um, la universidad, um, yo quiero, yo, yo quería ser una abogada uh -huh. por um, los disability rights, derechos de um, discapacidades. Sí, sí. Sí, sí, y... Um, es um, uh, no um, no tomo este or, este um, trabajo pero um, uh -huh. yo um, tiene la yo yo estoy curiosa um, por um, los um, or, por or sobre um, cómo la um, field es uh -huh. um, okay. uh -huh. Pero estás en buen camino, Suata, porque estás, estás en un ambiente eh, bastante de mucha abogacía para la comunidad de personas con discapacidad. Y, y estás, estás haciendo un buen trabajo, así que, así que y estás joven, <ríe> so, puedes, puedes considerar eh, continuar tus estudios. Sí, uh, yo estoy muy emocionada um, y yo... Me, y me um, divertí mucho. Yo también, yo también me divertí mucho con esas presentaciones. Y, y me encantó también que hubo el componente hoy día, Suasta, de, 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 de las formas como 
como hay otras organizaciones que se apoyan del trabajo que ACB hace para abogar por nuestra comunidad, eh, por ejemplo, la, la, las personas de Disability Rights Advocate, Advocates, que son, que son personas que, que básicamente eh, no quisiéramos llegar a ese punto, quisiéramos que, que, el, que, el, que en general eh, el gobierno, tanto federal como los gobiernos estatales y, los, y las compañías privadas tomaran la accesibilidad como algo, una prioridad, pero mm -hmm. lastimosamente no es así. Entonces es bueno saber que hay estas, estas, estas instituciones que están listas y dispuestas y tienen, eh, tienen la, la facilidad y el conocimiento legal para entablar un proceso en contra de los eh, organismos que no cumplen con accesibilidad. Entonces es bueno saber que hay un respaldo legal, que hay un recurso legal para que podamos eh, acceder al, al famoso you know, Department of Justice, el Departamento de Justicia, o, al, o, al, o a las diferentes oficinas de Civil Rights, las diferentes oficinas de Derechos Civiles, por medio de estas organizaciones que colaboran con ACB para, eh, digámoslo así, obligar a las instituciones que no están cumpliendo con con leyes de accesibilidad para obligarlos a que, a que tomen a, eh, medidas de, de remediar esas, esas fallas en accesibilidad. Sí, y um, el, es, es importante que recordar a um, Gabe um, para los um, hill visits um, uh -huh. que están ocurriendo uh, mañana y um, jueves y el viernes uh -huh. uh, de semana. Um, sí, los tenemos los recursos legales y um, tenemos um, la power, poder. Sí, el, el poder. Uh, sí, poder. Um, uh -huh. Sí, el poder. Um, uh, um, ten uh, tenemos el poder de... Um, Cambiar la ley o um, abogar para um, nuestros um, imperativos y um, issues que mm -hmm. nuestra, no, no, nosotros um, nos importa, importan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sí, claro. Sí. Y um, Gabe, yo quiero um, dar, um, yo quiero decir um, gracias por todo tu um, haces en el seminar y en la conferencia al ti. Es otro día y, um, nos, y um, yo y mi equipo um, um, sabemos um, el, el um, cantidad de cantidad de tu haces para um, este programa y este um, español um, que nos ofrecemos. Mm -hmm. sí. Bueno, so, como tú sabes, es, es una... Es, eh, nosotros en, 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 aquí en, en mi hogar, en mi familia, Anthony y yo um, amamos mucho ACB, we love ACB. 
Y una de las cosas que me apasiona mucho ha sido esto de tratar de, de incorporar este, este componente bilingüe y traer eh, ACB, porque ACB ha significado tanto para nosotros y significa tanto para nosotros que eh, yo, yo soy muy apasionado con compartirlo con las personas de habla hispana porque yo sé Sabemos en ACB que hay muchas personas de habla hispana que nos están escuchando porque yo he recibido llamadas y mensajes de personas que nos han estado escuchando estos cuatro días, Suata. Y, y yo sé que vamos a, a crecer en membresía, yo sé que vamos a crecer en diversidad y, y yo sé que la comunidad hispanoparlante eh, va a encontrar eh, un, un hogar en ACB como nosotros lo hemos hecho. Así que yo estoy muy contento, muy emocionado. Eh, todo el trabajo ha sido completamente gratificante porque saber el hecho de saber que, que estamos dando los primeros pasos para tener contenido en español, servicios en español, e información en español en ACB es un gran paso que me llena el corazón de mucha, mucha alegría. Y gracias a ti, Suata, por haber estado. Yo sé que los días han sido largos para ti, pero sin embargo hemos estado aquí todos los días puntuales a las seis de la tarde y, y yo creo que voy a extrañar esta, estas, estas llamadas Sí, no, yo también um, y es una um, sí, um, es um, va a ser una llamada a CB um, va, va a tener mucho en este um, regard sí. sí, 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 vamos a, hacer, vamos a seguir creciendo eh, para los que no saben, mientras, eh, mientras nos despedimos, les comento que yo eh, tengo el orgullo de liderar el subcomité hispano, que forma parte del comité de uh, aspectos multiculturales de ACB. Eh, trabajo bajo la dirección y junto a una persona que es muy querida, muy estimada para mí y muy respetada, que es Cheryl Cummings. Y eh, Dan Spoon, el presidente de ACB nos ha apoyado muchísimo y la junta directiva en general nos ha apoyado y creo que todos estamos muy entusiasmados con uh, ir creciendo en contenido y en uh, alcance en español y estamos muy emocionados para, uh, con, con el objetivo de incorporar uh, más personas hispanoparlantes en ACB y todo el, todo el, 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 el staff todo el personal de ACB, Tony, Clark, tú, Suata, Nancy, Kelly, todos han, han colaborado muchísimo con, con todo ese esfuerzo y vamos a seguir adelante. Y como siempre, eh, los dejamos con la forma que nos puede, en que nos pueden contactar. Nuestro correo electrónico es bienvenidos arroba acp.org. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> y uh, sí, um, adiós Gabe y um, nos vemos en el futuro. Nos vemos pronto Suata y para cerrar con tu lema en español. <laughs> y y um, siguen abogando. <laughs> Sigamos abogando. Gracias Suata. Ha sido Gracias, un honor Gabe. compartir este espacio contigo. Sí, es, es, también. <laughs>